Mach 3, give me cruise show on 2, 3, 4. Mach 3, give me start, line 2. 511. Mach 3, give me start, line 1, and cruise show on 7 and 9. Line one. Do something. I hate that. Super Ops Line 3, Red Ball, Avionics. Super Ops Line 2 is code 3 for Engine Nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice, nor the formation of an attorney-client relationship. Come on, it's a fucking podcast. Okay, so clearly the podcast is back up and running because we're doing back-to-back-to-back-to-back episodes. Uh, I'm joined by a friend of mine that we served together at Luke Air Force Base and Holloman Air Force Base for a period of time. Uh, Ross Steen, who is now retired from the Air Force, congratulations on that. And uh, we initially served together in at Luke Air Force Base. I was in production, and I think he was an expediter. And then at Holloman, uh, when I was kind of sliding all over the place, uh, Ross was there as well. So first of all, thanks for joining me, Ross. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chris. And as I was kind of talking to you beforehand, something I appreciate about you is that uh, you have the ability to have a fairly malleable um, position in a discussion, which I have found to be... Um, an exceptional and rare quality that you can change your mind depending on the information that you receive and consider other viewpoints. So those are the type of people, that's the type of people I like to have on this show. Actually, that's not true. I like to have people on the show that agree with me. And then the next people I like to have on the show are the people that can disagree with me and then agree with me. And the worst people on the show are the people that disagree with me and I just don't invite them on or I never publish those episodes. So welcome, Ross. Thank you. And I think I might agree with you now and then disagree with you later. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, We'll see. Tell me about your background. Yeah, I I did 20 years in the Air Force, uh, like you, basically 20 years to the day. Um, Avionics, about 10 years in, started expediting, uh, you know, several years in production, about a year as a lead pro, and then uh, retired as a section chief. And so you got to Luke, if I remember correctly, you got to Luke in 2013, when did we when did we first interact? Yeah, so I got to Luke coming from Korea. I had a line for tech. When I got there, I was hoping to expedite, but there was no spot, so I was on the line. And uh, pretty pretty soon after I got there, there was an impound for for flight controls. I considered myself a, a Flickus guru. Um, it was you know definitely my favorite system to work, and I wanted to be on that impound. And I started working it. Um, I don't remember if I was actually you know wrenching on the jet or looking through schematics or whatnot, but found out that you were the impound official quickly, you know, found out kind of your reputation, right? You didn't know me. Uh, you knew somebody else who, you know, you knew could handle the job and you, it, it seemed to be you weren't going to take a risk on somebody you didn't know. So I didn't get to work that, that like impound. What was my reputation? Well, at the time, my impression was you weren't going to take a risk on, on somebody you didn't know when you were in charge of the impound, right? Because it, it could look badly on you or maybe you drag out the impound or whatever the reasoning was. Um, and so of course at the time I felt slighted. Right. And uh, I, I, that's about as much as I remember about it. Um, well, I don't remember if I disliked you or, or anything else, but we'll do a quick detour. 
because I think it's it's an interesting th- uh, like thought experiment. My motivation for who I was picking on the impound had very little to do with the speed of the impound or my reputation. It had a lot more to do with, in my experience through, at the time, 15 years in aircraft maintenance, A, most impounds were not handled the way I thought they should be handled. They were just like um, an extension of the production mindset of green up. Like there's a difference between greening up a jet and fixing a jet. Those are, I mean, they should be the same thing, but those are actually treated as two different things. And in my experience, a lot of impounds, well, first of all, a lot of times the impound official was not the driver of the impound. They were sometimes a passenger where the lead seven level would kind of run with it. Um, and that sometimes was a symptom of the impound official not being in that AFSC. And actually an interesting fact about me, I think I've never worked a crew chief impound in my entire career. I've only done E&E and avionics impounds. So I've always been outside of my area of expertise. And for me, it was, I had a very methodical way of a preserving the impounded jet in a failed state for as long as possible to capture as many symptoms as possible to really go back to the history. I, I, it was very, for me, it was like, it was a true investigation. And I'm always, always afraid of either the, the people on the team, they didn't have the mindset of like really doing a deep dive or it was a rush to get it fixed. And one of the one of the pressures and influences I experienced was um, a lot of units, as soon as the jet was impounded, they would put the impound crew on 12-hour shifts. And I pushed back against that as, as much as I could because my fear was, if you put people on 12s and say they're on 12s until the impound's fixed, they are going to rush it through. You've just shifted their priority from fixing the jet correctly and exhaustively to hurry up and get it done so you can get off 12s. Um, So for me, it was, I wanted to ensure control so that way we had the best possible outcome. And you're right, I didn't know you, right? Right. And if I I didn't have the other individual who I did know, and you were the person that was presented, I essentially would have sat you down and we would have gone through what what my expectations were. Like I had had other impounds where there was somebody I didn't know. And typically at the end of every shift, we would have like a small meeting and everybody would throw out thoughts and theories and ideas. And the goal would be, you know, set rank aside. And everybody's supposed to poke holes in everybody else's theory and whatever can kind of withstand that technical expertise scrutiny. That isn't necessarily the answer, but it certainly rises to the top of things to consider. And I've had people in those meetings that were just throwing random shit out. And when you'd kind of poke at it, they would call, oh, that's what I've seen before. Well, can you explain how that behavior matches this <laughs> theory of operation? The answer is no. So if I didn't know you, but you were the person put up, you just would have been injected into that situation. And I would have evaluated in real time. And maybe you would have stayed. And maybe you would have been uh, let go from the team. But in this instance, I did have a history with that person. But I think it's very interesting that that was the first impression where I kind of stiffed armed you. And then later on in production, we had a lot of very robust conversations about a troubleshooting, um, organizational leadership, social issues and stuff in general. But also this isn't the the Chris McGee talking about his impound history show. This is 20 years down where I'm supposed to be asking Rothstein about a particular topic. So 
I digress. Well, let me jump in real quick. I want to say that what you just laid out with Impound. So two things. Had I joined your Impound team and not been briefed on what you said, I certainly would not have gone anywhere near the direction you wanted. Right. I, I, I do remember having a pretty good idea what was going to fix that airplane, what the direction was going to go. And I, I, I'm sure I would have been that seven level who wanted to run with it. Number one. Secondly, I think how you just presented handling an impound is an important thing in and of itself. Because even as somebody who spent years as a pro super, um, certainly my goal was to green up that jet. And I don't think I ever really dissected how that process should be. And what you just outlined is, is, is really important. So hopefully, you know, that's utilized at least by some in the future. I used to frustrate people because the first day of an impound, I literally wouldn't touch the fucking jet. I would, I would camp out in theory of operation, the aircraft history, the part history, and I would just sit there and research. And I'm not going to lie. I'm a pretty smart dude. But when I would read like theory of operation for flight controls, I would mm-hmm. have to read and I would get all done and realize that my brain had stopped absorbing like a third of the way yeah. down. And then I would have to reread slower and trying to parse out what it's saying. And then I would go find a subject matter expert, like an avionics person to go help me understand this. And then they would explain it in like layman's terms. And then I would read it again. And then I would finally have yeah. enough of an, of an understanding where if a technician told me something that was bullshit, I would be able to know it was bullshit. And so that's typically what I had to do. And I would get yeah. a whole day's worth of work and I'd come in the next day, like what's the status of the impound? I was like, we haven't touched it yet. <laughs> They'd be like, it's been 24 hours. I'm like, correct. <laughs> like rushing to it is how we got to this state. Right. But this is not an impound and troubleshooting podcast. <laughs> we're, what we're going to talk about today is actually a much lighter and technical. This is a podcast. We're going to, this subject of this podcast, is we're going to talk about the whole concept of don't bring a problem unless you bring a solution. Have you ever heard that uh, statement before, Ross? I'm pretty sure I've heard it from the man that I'm speaking to. Oh, really? Maybe. Shocker. Yeah, I've uh, I've grown. What do you think of that statement? That's pretty open-ended. Well, I guess generally, do you think it's a good um, policy? We'll say. I can see good in it. I think if somebody's bringing a problem, they should have an idea of what that solution could be. I I don't think they should be expected to know the solution. And I don't think that they should hesitate to bring what they perceive to be a real problem simply because they don't have a solution for it. Okay, so like, let's start with typically, and this isn't universally, but typically someone bringing a problem does not have the authority or agency to solve that problem, because if they did, they wouldn't be bringing the problem, they would be solving the problem. Is that fair? That's exactly right. Okay. So if I have a firm policy of don't bring a problem without a solution, what's problematic with that? There's going to be a lot of problems that those who work for you or under you see that are not going to be brought to your attention. Why not? Because you're going to shoot them down. Why? Because those people aren't going to be able to, they're not going to be able to have a solution. And so they know that they're going to come to you and they're going to get shit on about it. And it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, Why won't it go? So like if they, if they bring a problem, okay, let's say they bring a problem and a solution. Let's say, I mean, we're going to use like air force uh, general ranks. We're just going to speak generally. Let's say it's a, a, a young airman is bringing a problem to a tech sergeant or a master sergeant. 
something mm-hmm. either process or or something or something that frustrates them to get their job done is probably a good example you can think of a myriad of things that people get frustrated by that elongates the time they spend doing stuff that maybe is really inefficient and in our line of work efficiency is a very strong drive for a lot of things let's say they bring a problem they bring a solution i guess my question is a young airman with 2 to 3 years time in service compared to a master sergeant with 15 to 25 years time in service, is that lack of experience going to harm their ability to form a cohesive solution to the problem? I would say most of the time, yes. Why? Because, well, for one, I would say most master sergeants in that situation are going to immediately start to think of problems that airmen may not even be aware of or limitations to those solutions that the airmen may not be even be aware of. So in this hypothetical, mm-hmm. first we have to assume that the master sergeant may even be receptive to this airman coming with this problem. So if they're receptive to it, then they hear out the airman. And I, I just think, at least in my experience, that airman's just going to hear a myriad of reasons as to why that problem can't be fixed, whether it's funding or, or, or whatever it is. Yeah. It, it, that, that's hard for me. I, I just can't, I, I can't remember an experience where I could see an airman going to a senior NCO with a problem and it being taken seriously and the solution being taken seriously. That's how far disconnected I am from that possibility of happening. Okay, so when you talk about how receptive that that senior NCO is, let's let's maybe view this from the senior NCO's angle. And first of all, let's recognize there's a power dynamic in the military where right. the junior typically do not tell the senior what to do most times, right? Right. And two, you are a section chief, you are a pro super, you are a lead pro super. How much free time did you have? to have new optional problems to be put on your plate and to solve. And that's the problem. Um, rarely any. And if I did have that free time, the last thing I was looking for was airmen bringing me problems that I'm trying to solve when it comes to work type efficiency. If it's life or, or it's something else, right, that was different. But if it was something about, hey, my computer's slow or, hey, we don't have support equipment or, or hey, Manning sucks or whatever. I wasn't even going to try to put that on my plate, even if it was free. Yep. And and second, does that, we're just using senior NCO like broadly, does that senior NCO have a vested interest in that airman's problem as a baseline? No. Not if we're talking about efficiency or work now. Right. And I, I would say, you know, there's another hurdle here too, right? Why is this airman going to a senior NCO? Why has an NCO not been able to address this? And if the NCO can't handle it, why aren't they going to the senior NCO? So I think the chances of this airman succeeding in this hypothetical are next to zero. Okay. And in a lot of these, not a lot, uh, I'm speaking broadly. I don't know. I don't know what scenario I'm envisioning in my head, but I know I've encountered this multiple times, but maybe I will expand my aperture a little bit. In my experience as a Pro super, less as a pro super, much more as a section chief. When when Airman would bring me problems that were work related, I agree. Personal related was much easier to work with because I just had to connect the airman to the solutions that I already knew of in my Rolodex of stuff, 
what the shirt agencies, maybe I just give them time off, leave. Those are things that I can quickly sort of sort of do. I think in what we're talking about is when we're talking about work issues, it requires me, if I'm in the senior NCO role here, to go and advocate on behalf of my airmen somewhere else. I have to spend some of my um, like professional currency, my value to negotiate on their behalf. Um, maybe I have to push against up to my chief. If it's manning or experience, I might be afraid of of seeming like I'm out of touch with reality and it's going to hurt their perception of me that I'm pushing this itch, issue up. And it's and it's also like, and I, I said in another podcast, I can't remember which one. I remember one time I was at a group meeting and this jet had not been fixed in a timely manner. And the 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 group, the deputy group commander had asked the OIC why, what's going on. And she began to speech and he said, and I don't want to hear it's Manning. I want to, I don't want to hear it's Manning. We know Manning's bad. You can't use Manning as an excuse. And then she had to stop and essentially pull away 90% of her explanation of why the jet wasn't fixed and try to find these weird, nuanced, granular, ancillary reasons for the jet not being fixed. And we're ignoring the elephant in the room of we are right. grossly under-resourced. So if it's a manning issue or something the airman's bringing me, we don't have enough whatever shifts or whatever, and I'm trying to bring it up, that is that is a broken record. It's a dead horse. Mm-hmm. And people above me essentially are deaf to it because they've heard it so much that I'm also going to be less likely to push that right yeah i think that's 100 percent, and i think that's a big a big part of the problem because i mean let's face it at least in in our field in aircraft maintenance um i think manning has been the crux of most of our issues that we experienced um i think more manning would have we would have had totally different experiences um so yeah i've and, and there's other problems, too, that are going to fall on deaf ears, whether, you know, other things that are funding related or, or ops tempo, you know, ops tempo is the same thing. That's not going to change just like Manning. And I wonder how much and this will get maybe a little bit dark, but I wonder how much the young airman's belief that things can be better is a disparate sort of position compared to the senior NCO that's been in for 15, 20, 25 years who has seen things degrade or not get better or people not listen to that the airman still perhaps naively be, be, be believes there is hope to make things better. And the senior NCO might be jaded or like this stuff doesn't work. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's possible to say uh, or impossible to say really like, so when I think about for me, when I, when I joined the air force, if we're talking about manning, there was a ton of people, mm-hmm. right? We had so many airmen as an avionics troop. Either I was going home early, or I was wiping on jets because we just had so many people. Um, so I saw the possibilities of that, and then it went away and never came back. Versus the airmen who have come in in more recent years, they've seen the lower side and never seen what's possible on the other side. Um, so I don't know if that gives them hope that you know maybe it can only get better from here. Or somehow it can get better from here. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, what about like obviously I've been out for man five, almost six years now. Uh oh, I'm getting long in the tooth. <laughs> um, what about the whole? There's like almost a 
a groundswell of this, I don't know if it's actual culture or a projected culture of innovation. The youngest airmen can solve the Air Force's biggest problems. We just need to, to invite them to the conversation and this is going and we're going to collectively solve things. You're shaking your head. We're we're never going to invite them to the conversation. We're never going to invite them to the seven o'clock meeting, let alone to the conversation of how we're going to solve problems. It just doesn't happen. Do we, we invite do we know, invite them to the conversation when their idea aligns with what we wanted anyway? Maybe a one-on-one conversation, but not the conversation. Well, sometimes you see these air, airmen presented like publicly and Air Force wide of this great solution. But is it that they they create a solution and there was a culture that allowed that solution to move up and expand? Or was it a solution the Air Force was actively seeking and that person just happened to be saying what the Air Force wanted to hear for a solution? I think it's either the latter or it's we're going to show you know, that this is possible. We're going to take this opportunity to show that, you know, we're listening to the younger airmen and we're letting them run with it. You know, they're nice stories, right? But what I really focus on in this conversation is empowerment. I think that to me is the crux of the whole conversation, Mm. right? So we talk about senior NCOs empowering NCOs Mm -hmm. and NCOs empowering airmen. Um, I don't, I don't believe that that's actually a thing. I don't think there's any true empowerment. And so because of the lack of, of true empowerment, um, I don't see airmen given that being given that latitude to, to solve those issues. You ever heard the term, it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. I have. What does that mean? I mean, really it's, you know, it, you, once it's done, it can't be undone, right? So if you're asking for permission, it hasn't been done yet and it can be stopped. But, you know, what, once it's been done, then we have an opportunity to see if it's if it's good or bad. And if it's bad, then ask for forgiveness, I guess. So if we imagine a culture that is trying to empower airmen to solve their problems at the lowest level and we are encouraging people to bring problems to also bring solutions. That model seems to be at odds with a mantra of it's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission, or it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. Because the way I see it is if you have to make a choice of either I'm going to ask to do this, but I think they're going to tell me no, even though it's a good idea. So I'm just going to do it anyway. And at least I'll be able to show up with the outcome that belies a culture that rejects innovation as a baseline. And you have the burden to overcome the inertia against innovation. So let me put it this way. So I remember I, I, we'll do a scenario if that makes sense. Okay. So I remember I was on an impound as I tend to be, and it was for a airframe vibe. And we were trying to locate this vibe and we, you know, we were, I was doing the engine runs and I could feel it at certain RPMs, but that doesn't mean it's engine because it could be like a resonance with the airframe with a particular gap or something. That's what's very frustrating about them. Um, and obviously sometimes those are exacerbated in the air compared to the ground because the tires and the struts act as almost a dampening for it. And I remember feeling it 
and it felt like it was coming from the pedals or the front of the jet. And we had exhaustively looked at um, like the entire avionics package up front and all these sorts of things. I think we replaced the FCR because I think we were even running the FCR to differentiate between the antenna moving vibration versus the airframe. And I thought that the radome might have been slightly, slightly um, gapped in such a way that when the engine was running, it was essentially just microscopically vibrating against its attachment points. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to tie paracord around the PDOT probe, not the hot part, but where it mounts to, and then stand off to the side and then hold it at tension and essentially like pull on it to see if while it was vibrating, if I could influence the vibration through manipulation of the radome's position and closing. And obviously there's a risk when you're putting something in front of the running jet engine of ingestion. So A, we made sure the knot was a tightening knot that if if it was pulled on, it would get tighter and not looser. And then we even measured the paracord that it could not physically come in contact with the engine. It would be like four feet from the engine. Like it could, if I were to lose control of it and it was pulled, mm. it would just go with the halfway mark of the intake. So the risk, and that gave us enough length that I could stand well outside the intake like danger zone. And I was like, well, this is, this is good. This at least, cause I'm just trying to isolate and figure these things out. And I went to the OIC Lieutenant and I said, Hey, here's, and I, I told him what I wanted to do. And he's like, let me see what you're talking about. So we, we already had it set up. We just hadn't run yet. And we showed this is how far out we are. This is when it's at tension. We're going to start this way. If we happen to let go of it and lose it, this is how far it can go down. We've essentially mitigated as much of the risk as humanly possible. And this will at least eliminate the radome as a possibility. And then we can move on from there. He's like, no. I'm like, but I don't understand. Like, what is the risk? What is the danger? He's like, I don't, I just don't like it. And in that moment, I really wish I had just done it and either it didn't matter because nobody knew and he just would eliminate it or later on tell him, yeah, like we did this. And he's like, oh, well, we already did it and it was fine. So when, when I think about having a problem and bringing a solution, but also the, the mantra that is fairly common of it's better to ask for forgiveness, beg for forgiveness than ask for, for permission, that belies a culture that actually doesn't encourage innovation because people will choose to innovate without authority because if they seek authority, very often that innovation will be rejected by risk-averse people. And you can't innovate without risk, period. Right. So it's almost like the culture is there. I would say that there's an argument for the culture would have done the paracord experiment. Uh, we have a lot of people... We have risk takers on the flight line every day. We have people taking chalks and hitting on the side of the of the aircraft to try to, you know, turn an inlet light back on, right? While the engine's running, for instance, right? And that's that's I, I think is pretty common practice. Uh, nothing that's going to be signed off by anybody above a staff sergeant, right? But we have things like that happening all the time, and then a few of those people, a low percentage of those people have to stand and answer for what they did. And typically when they're standing and answering for what they did, the consequences aren't even going to be that dire to where the risk is worth it. You know, that brings up an interesting point because what you're describing is a cult cultural norms, work cultural norms, 
that are task related, that are technical in nature, that people, the individual technicians have to assume the risk yeah. for the benefit of the unit and of the leadership. Absolutely. Whereas the leadership will not assume that risk. Right. And if they if they rejected it, it would be to a, a detriment to the mission effectiveness, which means when you shift the risk to the technician, to the benefit of the leadership, that's, that is the best case scenario for leadership. Yes. Because they reap all the benefits and incur very little of the risk. But the, the, the very important crossroads is when in the rare instance, the risk actually creates an adverse event of some kind, what leadership does with that in that moment. And in my experience, depending on a lot of times it's dependent on the reputation or the reliance of the expertise of that individual technician. If you have a, a, a five level senior airman that nobody really knows and he's banging a chalk and something adverse happens, maybe some wood splinters off and gets in a tire or something. I'm not going to have a catastrophic event, something bad. They might get hemmed up, but if it's your swing shift seven level that literally does all your maintenance and they do it, I think it's going to be, well, you need to make sure that doesn't happen again. And I think that creates a very unsteady or uncertain um, rule set that isn't clearly defined, but ultimately I think benefits people that don't engage, uh, engage in the risk. And I think that's kind of unfair. Yeah. And I would say the fairness of that, you know, goes even further. I mean, this is kind of off topic, but I've always thought that our airmen and our junior NCOs that are working the line are taking all the risk. I mean, those of us who are section chiefs, pro supers and, and up when we make mistakes, our, our level of account accountability is totally different. For instance, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody who's not on the line in a maintenance complex, get paperwork for something that happens within paper with, within maintenance versus, you know, people on the line or whether it's QA fails or, or whatever it may be. Um, they're, they're much more susceptible to that. Um, in the instance we were just talking about with, you know, the airman taking the risk versus somebody who's more established taking the risk. I don't even necessarily think that it matters. I think those of us that, that have been in leadership or continue to be in leadership that, that I think that's the only way we can operate because there's so many things that we can't accept and we won't accept and we won't, um, condone. And we know that there's things that have to be done that we won't accept. And so, we as a leadership complex are, are turning a blind eye to that and yet expecting it to be done. And then when it is done and it's found out, um, at least in my more recent experience, those people are, are hemmed up, especially when it goes negative. That is a very interesting point that I think opened up, at least in my mind, a can of worms. So what you described was typically the junior personnel have a higher risk. You have not seen more senior personnel receive paperwork for something that a junior personnel would receive, right? Never mind right. the fact that junior personnel interact with those risks at a much higher rate than the senior personnel. But I think the senior personnel's their mistakes have much broader effects compared to the like. If I'm an airman and I miss something on my pre-flight, that is. A, a failure that is restricted just to that jet and possibly just mm -hmm. to a subsystem of that jet, right? Whereas if I'm a pro super and, or how about I'm an ex, this is, this is a, this is a true story. I was an expediter 
And I sent down an airman to get uh, uh, five centerline tanks. This was a Friday night. We had five reconfigs to do. And we had like a defuel crew. We had a hang crew. And then we had a um, an ops check crew. And I sent an airman down that wasn't familiar with Luke. They were fairly new. And they didn't know there was a good side and bad side tanks for Tank Farm. And mm. Tank Farm had gone home. And they literally picked up five bad centerline tanks and hung them all, right? And the and now now your whole night is destroyed. Yeah, like literally we hung all these tanks and put gas in them, and now they're not transferring, oh they're God. not showing. And it's like weekend <laughs> duty literally came in to do reconfig, which is like the most embarrassing thing ever. But like right. my authority increases my the severity of my failures, so to speak. Right. And why wouldn't those be why wouldn't I be held more accountable? Because I can inflict more harm because of my level of responsibility. And then the second thing well, you talked about, like a lot of times leadership it doesn't want to like stick their neck out for these risks. It reminds me of when um, I was EOR super towards the end of my illustrious career. And we were in the middle of nowhere. We had no bathrooms. We had a very sort of wide flying schedule did, that didn't allow us to kind of come off EOR. So we were doing like 12 to 14 hour shifts because they only wanted one EOR crew or the swing shift was turning over at a weird time. And we were in a truck and there and it, we were on the flight line. They're like, well, obviously no cell phones. And I was the master in charge of the crew and I was out there and I was looking at jets. I'm like, you all can use your fucking cell phones. And if QA comes up, you tell them that Sergeant McGee said you can use your cell phones and they can come talk to me. And that was like a very easy thing to do. I was in absolute violation of the reg, willfully. But to me, it made sense. And also, I had the protection of when you're a master sergeant, you're not going to get paperwork for your airman using the cell phone. But an airman will. How many times have you seen an airman get caught with a cell phone on the flight line? They get an LOC or LOR or have to do some menial task like put up signs all over the building, no cell phones on the flight line. But if a master if, if if a master says, I told them they could use their cell phones, the response would be, hey man, like don't do that. You know that it's a rule. It looks bad when you do that. That would have been the response. And I think it I think it belies a level of risk aversion and cowardice that the ones that have the most authority and the least accountability are the ones least likely to stick their necks out to solve problems outside the typical bounds. Well, you stuck your neck out. You, you stuck your neck out for something that was outside of acceptable bounds. And I think that's exceedingly rare. So you took the responsibility. It wasn't a, you didn't have that plausible deniability now. Correct. And I think the vast majority of senior NCOs and above are operating in that plausible deniability place. So in your situation, had QA given them, I don't even know what type of fail that would be, maybe a UCR or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it comes out that Master Sergeant McGee authorized it knowing it was wrong. I could see actually in that situation, you getting paperwork because you openly did accept that risk and you put your name on kind of defiance of that regulation. That is by far not the norm, though. I don't know what would have come of it. I think that I think my situation is not a good example because of the layered shit going on with me at that time, where 
I was at extreme risk because of investigations going on, but also the leadership was hesitant because of fear of looking retaliatory. So it's not a, it's not a clean story, unfortunately, but it rem- okay, here it reminds me of, I think I wrote about this story when I talked about Brian Ingram in a story in the blog called What's With the Seven Levels. I wrote it, uh, I think in like 2018, maybe. And I was a young seven level on swing shift and he was my expediter and I had done a pre-flight and I found that the stabs trailing it, the horizontal stabilizer trailing edge of rivets were starting to get loose. And I had gone up to him and said, hey, I need uh, Shimo to come out for an eval on this. And he flipped his board. He's like, hey, that's going into phase in like three days. And I said, well, what if uh, QA hits this pre-flight? It's my name on it. He's like, well, I'll take the hit for it. And it didn't, QA didn't hit it. It went into phase, but for whatever reason, the crew chief or the notes or something didn't turn over. And for, for fucking whatever reason, phase didn't find the loose rivets. It came back out from phase and the first team or first place that uh, started McGee beeline for was to look right at that stab because I wanted to make sure that it was fixed because I had essentially carried three days worth of risk of QA finding it and the rivets were still broken. And I think I took a fail or someone took a fail or something. And um, I completely dimed out my expediter. I said, on this date, I informed him he told me not to, and we were going to carry it. Da, 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 da. And I put that in one of those stupid root cause analysis. I'm like, there is no root cause. Root cause is I found it, I reported it, and we didn't do what we we're supposed to do about it. It went to his boss, senior master sergeant that was lead super. They brought him in. He's like, yeah, I told I told McGee not to write it up because that's my job as an expert is to fucking weigh the risks and still get the mission done. Like that's how this shit works. And I'm surprised that you as a lead production superintendent doesn't understand that that's how this works, which also props to Brian Ingram for being an absolute badass and, and just saying how it was. I think you you can be this way because I think, much like you said, the plausible deniability, I think the dirty secret is a lot of people know that this stuff happens. They just don't want right. to know. So when it does come to fruition and someone's very forthright with, this is what happened, this is why I did it, and everyone knows this is how it's done, I think it actually disarms everything the accountability piece because i think everybody goes yeah he's right this is how it goes um so i I can talk in my in my own experience um and i i have a story for this so i i mentioned uh a chalk being used to kind of you know the crew chiefs smacking the side of the airplane trying to get an inlet light to come back on it's very cliche by the way very uh caveman-esque yeah so um, I was the lead, I was the lead pro super. Um, I was in a squadron that was, um, increasingly becoming sensitive to, I guess what you would call for lack of better terms, abnormal maintenance or, mm-hmm. or, um, even, um, SIG events really just, just, uh, really trying to avoid any kind of SIG events. What's a SIG event? Like a significant event? Like a significant event, damage to aircraft, damage right. to, uh, equipment, um, really anything that needs to that is going to need to get briefed to group leadership. Right. Um, so the ceremony's launching out this jet. It's daytime. It's, you know, um, super bright outside. And uh, his left side inlet light isn't on. Um, and he, he's, he's seen his NCOs uh, use this trick before. So he tries to, to get it to come back on with the chalk. And he ends up hitting the light. 
Oh, and shattering and smashing it. the light. Yeah. And so there's, you know, pieces of plastic or whatever all over the flight line. And, and we ground aboard the jet. And um, I don't even know if I was right or wrong in this moment because I never went back to really check. Um, but I was under the impression that the jet was flyable. Um, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to stop it. So I went out there and talked to the airman and I, I chewed him out and I was like, you know, this jet's totally flyable. Now we just ground aboard this jet. What the hell are you doing? Um, so then the, you know, squadron leadership obviously hears about it and the airman's getting hemmed up. And, uh, I was talking to my chief, my chief was a 30 year chief and he was a crew chief an F-16 crew chief. And I was like, chief, come on. Like we all know this happens. Yep. Right. And he's like, I've never heard of it before. And I was like, you're fucking lying. <laughs> and we had other, you know, 30 year chiefs within the group. And from what I understood, they all agreed, or at least that's what he told me is that they all agreed that they had never seen that before. And I actually lost my job as a lead pro. That was probably the catalyst of why I lost my job because I was allowing that to happen on the flight line. So I don't know. So I'll I'll say from my experience, I don't know if I've ever seen a hit with a chalk, but I've definitely seen a hit with a rubber mallet or your palm for sure. It's hitting that light is normal because it's the uh, the spring in the socket. There's a little bit of right. gap, a little bit of corrosion, whatever. Maybe I don't know. Maybe somebody didn't use like the uh, the silicone for the connection. I can't imagine someone putting a light bulb in without that uh, you know the grease, but. Yeah, I've absolutely seen it happen. And either your chief did not live a life in maintenance or he was being dishonest. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, and I think he was being dishonest. Let's try to pull it back a little bit to the conversation of uh, bringing a problem without bringing a solution. So uh, the way I see it is, remember how you thought we were going to disagree on this? Oh, I was messing around. Oh, damn it. So, well, no, I, sw <laughs> I swung you with what happened. I've changed your mind. When an airman, so this is my, I didn't want to spill this at the beginning because I didn't want to like taint the conversation or bias you. An airman very often lacks the complete picture to know what the best solution is. But the airman right. is experiencing the problem and can articulate the problem likely very fucking clearly. And when right. they're bringing that problem, they're bringing it to someone they believe has the authority or at least the, the capacity to facilitate solving that problem. Right. And I think when you have a baseline culture of don't bring a problem without a solution, it is very likely a deterrence, as I think you pointed out uh, like 30 minutes ago, it is a deterrence to people bringing problems because you are now burdening them with not only recognizing and properly describing the width and breadth of the problem, you have to give them, you you burden them with the requirement to solve it when they have significantly less, un, less understanding of the intricacies that it might be causing the problem. And when, when they bring it, they're very often going to bring it with a simplistic solution because they don't have the full scope and understanding of the problem, which then allows you to bat it away right, and say, we don't have enough manning. We did it, go through the list of problems and they do that enough times and they stop bringing problems. And right. absolute reality is most, not most, some leaders want people to stop bringing them problems. And they, they don't care if it's because there aren't problems or because people just aren't bringing them. And I think subconsciously they genuinely don't give a fuck between those two. 
they just want the problems to stop. And then they tell themselves, well, nobody's bringing problems to me. So everything must be fine. It's a, it's a little story. They tell themselves to essentially think everything is copacetic. And I think if you were to flip, I think if you were to flip this thing, what would happen if you told someone that had the power and authority to solve problems to go out and find problems? It's the same fucking theory of don't bring a problem without solution. Don't have solutions without finding problems. That sounds patently fucking ridiculous. And while there are commanders that do walkabouts and they generally ask people if everything's okay, I think some commanders generally want to know if stuff's okay. Uh, two podcasts ago with John Cordell, he talked about, you asked you know, people three questions. Hey, how are you doing? How's your day? Or what are you doing? And do you have any problems? And that is actively seeking like problems to solve. But I think a lot of times leaders, A, don't have the bandwidth to go and seek problems, right? I think that's not even an efficient way of doing things. If anything, you should foster a culture where people can voluntarily bring problems to your problem solvers, and then they quickly employ their authority and agency to to solve them or upchannel to someone that do. Um, I think it is just as inefficient to require people that identify problems to also come up with solutions. Yeah. So, okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I don't know that there's very often, so if we're talking about the people who have the, the, the power to uh, solve the problems, to be looking for the problems, um, it's exceedingly rare that they're going to get uh, fully truthful answers from the airmen that are experiencing the problems. I don't know that I've ever seen, say, let's say it's a group commander, it's a colonel, um, coming through an AMU trying to talk to airmen. I don't know that I've ever seen a colonel come and talk to the airmen where their their section chief or somebody else similar isn't standing right there watching the interaction. And so now that airman knows that if they just, you know, blurt stuff out that's been on their mind uh, for months or whatever, that they're going to get a ton of backlash once that colonel leaves. Um, and there's other, there's so many other why, obstacles. Why would they get backlash? Well, one, one, it's going to start with, they're going to, they're going to get brought, you know, chain of commands going to get brought up. Why didn't you bring this to my attention? Why didn't you give me the chance to solve this? Uh, you know, um, I think that's going to be fostered. That, that'll be fostered within the unit, even if that airman did bring it up. To... I'll tell you what, my you're right. But my section chief, Ricky Radford, solved fucking problems. I never had to go around him because I went to him and then he fucking produced solutions for me. He literally would stay late to make sure we had like coveralls and stuff. He would stay late, find out our sizes and stay and make sure we got it. He was the quintessential flight chief of I'm an airman. I go to my flight chief with a problem and he will solve it. So when you're talking about, you're right, uh, when when an airman or an NCO asks the commander, the colonel, lieutenant colonel, some question with his flight chief standing right behind him and they become incensed, that is not the airman's fault. That is a representative representation of the culture either in the unit for people's um, inability to take airman's problems as a personal charge to solve them with their authority or an individual, their flight chief doesn't care. And before Kevin Traw has an aneurysm, because I know he's listening, um, Kevin was like me and Kevin had a fantastic relationship because I was in, in, in staff sergeant in his unit. He was the squadron commander. And I would consistently 
bring up problems to him in our in, or in our squadron commander's call, he would seek me out. He would ask some questions. He would go, where's McGee at? And then I would pop my hand up and I would say, hey, like sheet metal or metal sec is going home when we have work to do at midnight and it takes them three hours to bring in their guy and we're it's adding three hours to our shift. And he's like, that's good to know. And then he would go and actively try to solve the fucking problem, which meant I'm going to keep bringing stuff up to him. What was really funny is we would do an AMU call before the squadron call. So before uh, Kevin would come in as a squadron commander, I don't know if you ever, I don't know if I ever told him this, the AMU would do their AMU call and they would go, okay, the commander's going to be here in five minutes. McGee, what are you going to ask him? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll see what pops into my fucking head. And it would drive them nuts. But what's interesting was they would not seek me out anytime other than that AMU call to find out what it is that's making my life hard, which means their motivation was not to solve issues in the unit, which was Kevin's uh, motivation. Their issue was to not look bad in front of their commander and boss. And I think that is the underlying issue where it chills people from asking because there is uh, retribution isn't the right word. There's almost like a social sort of mm-hmm. uh, pressure from your flight. Hey, what'd you, what'd you go and tell the the commander about the, the flight line kitchen for? You should let me know that so I can handle it. Like, right. If you, if you fixed other shit, I would be bringing you shit. I have lost confidence in your ability to either care or fix things. So I'm just going to do an end around on you. And I don't care what it makes you look like. You don't have very many people who are uh, going to be comfortable enough to go above that section chief like that. So like your, your situation where you were speaking out in front of the AMU or in front of the squadron or whatever to the commander, regardless of how that leadership felt. It's really two things. You felt you were emboldened enough to do that, regardless of what the consequences were. And the consequences weren't bad enough to stop you from doing it. And I think that that's also exceedingly rare because the more your leadership within your unit gets frustrated that you're doing it, the worse the consequences are going to be for you. But it also further motivates them to get their house in order as well. If I can poke him in the I eye, I agree. Every the month, benefit, yep. the benefit's amazing. There's no doubt, and I wish that was happening all the time because that's what needs to be happening. When commanders are asking those questions, we need the Chris McGees and others to be speaking out, regardless if they're right or wrong, regardless if it is a problem or not. When somebody asks, "What are your problems?" or "What's bothering you?" or whatever, in in an ideal world, we would be speaking our mind, and then and then our leadership could determine. Hey, you know what? What's a priority? What's not? What's legit? What's not? But that's not happening. We're it's it's the how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, that's what that's what our culture is. It's the grocery store interaction. You show up to the checkout. Right. How's your day? Good. Thanks. That's what people right. want. But that's also it placates them. It 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 allows them. It gives them the plausible deniability that everything's fine. But also right. to to at least give some sort of um, advocacy for the leaders here. You were a section chief. I was a section chief. You were a lead super. I was a lead super. How much time did you have in your day to dedicate to novel problems showing up that didn't immediately impact you? I'll be honest with you. As a lead pro, most of the problems that other master sergeants brought to me, I didn't have time for. Fair. Um. As a as a section chief, um, like, I think, were you overworked? As I, I know, I worked a lot of hours as a section chief. I would very often come in on weekends to do the stuff I couldn't get to that week. Ironically and and angrily, 
my favorite day of the week was Monday as a section chief because I had I had come in the weekend and cleared my to-do list and task list when I couldn't have more shit added to it. And the first half of Monday is when I got to work on whatever project that I'd been cooking up that I needed to allocate time for. Because by noon on Monday, after a certain amount of meetings, my notebook of things I needed to do was already filling. And by Friday, I would typically work like 15 to 17 hours on Thursdays just to give myself a 10 hour Friday, knowing that I would have to come in that weekend as well. So that seems like somebody that doesn't have enough bandwidth to take on any extra problems, especially from someone below me that doesn't write my EPR. Right. And I, I think that's the issue. And, you know, part of that battle to be fair to that section chief is, you know, you're trying to write decks, you're trying to write EPRs, you're trying to write awards, you know, as just one of the several things that's, that's on your plate. And so that's your, that's your way, at least in your mind, probably not true to the airman at all, but in your mind, that's your best way to take care of your airman is to, is to get those things done and, and take care of their career. And so, you know, I didn't work those kinds of hours, but I didn't have that. I also didn't have the bandwidth to uh, have that open that open door policy and I, where I was really going to take on the problem. I mean, my airman could talk to me, but I can't think of a single time when my airman said, hey, this is a problem. And that became a priority when it was about efficiency or work. And it, 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 at least if it wasn't an easy solve, you know, hey, I need cold weather gear. That's an easy solve, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if it was something that was more, okay, so I have an example the last AMU I was in, we had 25 airplanes and we had nine E&E troops total. And I had a tech sergeant E&E troop who I was utilizing as a, you know, just on the, on the flight line. Mm-hmm. And his career growth, he needed to move on. He needed to expedite or he needed to do something else. And he would come to me pretty regularly asking when he could move. And, you know, at first I'd show, first couple of times I'd show him the Manning picture and uh, why I couldn't do it. And eventually it got to the point where I just didn't even want to hear it anymore. I, I didn't, I didn't have the bandwidth or a solution. Um, and it had fallen on deaf ears. And I, I don't know, that's just kind of my recollection of how those types of situations go. So you kind of talked about as a section chief, your plate overfloweth with EPRs and awards and decorations, leave and all the other things, you know, maybe discipline appointments with the commander, like your day is full plus whatever taskers and trackers and manpower and all these things, right? Do you think an airman on the line who is frustrated with something, I don't want to say anything particular because then I'm going to alienate at least like one listener. Um, Maybe it's uh, weapons, not running mules, or maybe it's sheet metal, not showing up with a TO. Right. I assume those things still happen and we haven't fucking managed to correct those issues, but weapons will never run mules. Let's just drop it. Okay. Well, they, they used to. Right. <laughs> There's a reason why the guy at the interest is I hate weapons. All right. Do you think that airman would rather have an award written or you to solve their immediate problem? Solve their immediate problem. So why do we prioritize awards over what the airman actually wants? Because our leadership wants the awards. And why does our leadership want awards? And why does our section chief want awards? Because it is their own ego. Right. Absolutely. We are prioritizing our own ego to make it look like we're taking care of our people instead of actually taking care of our people and prioritizing what they need to be healthy and happy. 
It's a hundred percent right. And it's funny to me because I never even realized that, you know, if I write it, like for instance, a senior man below the zone package that I think is just incredible and they don't win. I don't even think I'm really concerned with that airman and the fact that they didn't win. I'm concerned that I didn't win. So yeah. yes, I, I definitely relate to what you're saying. Yeah. There's a lot of issues here. It, there's a remember when uh, before we started recording, you said I'm worried we're not going to have enough to talk about on this topic, Chris. <laughs> I think we're all yeah. like 50 minutes in or more now. Yeah, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface. To be honest with you, yeah, because it's like this is human nature. It's all about motivations, right? Like, right, we are creatures of what motivates us, and I think the most important thing is leaders determine the motivation of those below them. So when you're talking about a section right. chief is not writing, I remember, um, I don't remember who it was, but one time it was the quarterly awards period and they went up to one of the section chiefs. And he's like, I don't have anybody. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have anybody? He's like, none of my guys were exceptional this quarter. Like I had a lot of issues. We were barely kind of treading water. Like they're good people but their performance was poor. Like, look at our, look at all of our break rates and all these things. Like we don't have a strong candidate. And I know these other sections have great airmen. Like I would be wasting my time trying to get this award together. And let's that, never mind the fact that um, it wasn't me. It, so it wasn't me, but you, I can add this little sort of um, twist to a story I had. I had this airman that was a fucking badass, Like, Young A1C, I think he was in line for BTZ, and he would he would work so hard. He was CDCs were done. He was just trucking. Natural leadership, charismatic, like easygoing, every no no issues off base. Everything you wanted in an airman. And I was like, I'm putting this guy up. He's my best, certainly for this quarter. And I put him up, and he didn't have any volunteer bullets. And they came back and said. Uh, he doesn't have any volunteer bullets. I'm like, well, we can switch it to a maintenance professional or we can just take, I think he had some volunteer, but it wasn't strong. It was like, mm -hmm. whatever it was. I was like, we can just use those. And uh, my boss came up to me and he said, uh, hey, there's a food drive this weekend. Tell him to go to that and go ahead and slap it on his award now. And I'm like, I, I will not tell him to go to a food bank this weekend at all. He's like, don't you want to take care of your guy? Like he needs this for his award. <laughs> like, can you think of a more backwards fucking scenario that my guy that commits everything to getting the job done, who I think is one of the best technicians I've seen, leadership otherwise, and maybe when he gets done with his exhaustive fucking week of being a badass, he wants to just go hiking or he wants to recuperate. Or also, let's look at the value of the downtime as it is increasing his capacity for the next week to perform the mission. And the, the sheer audacity and lack of awareness for why telling someone to go and give more of their time for charity against their will and then hanging their award on it is abusive, period. It's extortion. And it, yeah, and it totally lacks humanity. Y yeah. It, it also, you know, you're not seeing what, like you said, that, that airman probably doesn't even care about that award at that point. If that airman is told, hey, you go do this food drive, 
and you have a chance at winning this award, it's not even guaranteed. We can't Correct. guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Or you go enjoy your weekend. Thanks for your hard work. We all know what they're going to choose. But the problem with that is the culture of careerism that everybody, what they really want is that award and that inv- advancement. And we're not even thinking about, do they really want that time with their family or their time with their hobbies or whatever else it is, right? We're not, it, it, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't, we don't even, we don't even consider that. Do you have any doubt that if I went up to this airman, and I'm sure I did, but if I went up to this airman and really sat him down and walked through all the things I noticed that he was doing, and then also recognized, I probably don't even see everything because I'm here and he's out there, Right. but I hear things, I see things, how he shows up, his attitude, his intellect, his forms, documentation, you name it. I see it. I see him. I understand that he is excelling and he is contributing to a very important mission. And to me, it is amazingly valuable. Like we talk about awards as recognition. I would argue that me doing that as his section chief, as his supervisor, as his leader, with the respect he has for me, I assume, that would be way more fucking valuable than an awards package that may or may not go up that I'm now burning him with. Like, we have somehow separated actual recognition in leadership to some sort of bastardized, codified, sanitized, quantified recognition that also faces some sort of arbitrary gatekeeping of good old boy or favoritism anyway. Like, I think if I would go up to that airman and have that really good conversation and take 30 minutes of his day and then also maybe kick him a day off too and find him more time and give him his weekend, he would probably be more prone to fucking volunteer, ironically. Right. Right. And I guess that's kind of the counter argument to this whole thing too, right? Like, so that airman's been busting his ass the whole week, and now we're being asked to send him to a food drive. I mean, maybe we can, if it's possible, maybe we can give him time, you know, elsewhere or, or other things like that. But, I mean, I think the sentiment is is, is dead on. Um, I think a heartfelt, you know, you're, you're killing it from somebody that an airman respects is going to mean a lot more than a commander handing them a trophy that they don't perceive is going to do anything. Yeah. And I think there's also like downstream effects of getting, you know, favorable promotion statements. And that's probably a conversation for another podcast, but right. Like there are so many layered cultural influences and motivations that I think really get in the way of taking care of your people and solving their problems to go back to the whole point of the podcast. We have created this massive apparatus that manifestly impairs our ability as leaders to solve problems for our airmen to their detriment, which is going to increase distress, decrease retention. And I also believe that it's going to decrease recruitment because I think the best recruiters for the military are prior service members going out into the world and saying, I had a good experience or this thing, these things were great. And by the way, that's free and free advertisement, free recruitment and stuff like that. Um, well, Ross, uh, we're probably near the end of the topic, but 
as I ask everybody from this topic, which was very <laughs> meandering, if you had a magic wand and you could change something in the Air Force, what would you uh what would you bing do to solve some of these problems? This one's also yeah, that, barely unsolvable, so I will forgive you if you struggle to answer. This is this is where the pause is going to come, and I think I'm going to have to think, uh, you know, as as I sit here on this. How about this? Um, How about this, Ross? It would be hypocritical for me to host a podcast dedicated to if you bring a problem, you should bring a solution, and at the very end of the podcast, lay it at your feet <laughs> to solve a problem that we admit is hyper complex. So maybe this is the podcast. But we don't do that. And maybe this is also the podcast that changes my final question to inviting people to provide a solution, but not requiring it. All right. Well, I had a great time. I did too. Yeah. I did too. I I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I think uh, the more that we dissect this, so I've been, you know, away from active duty now, not for very long, six months, but it, you know, it feels a while and I feel a bit disconnected. Um, I'll tell you that it, for me, just looking at this one aspect of the barriers, because the real goal here is that our airmen feel valued, mm -hmm. they're efficient, they make the mission happen, and you know uh, they enjoy what they're doing by way of not being overworked or overstressed or anything like that. They're you know overall satisfied with what they're doing. This is just one of many, many, many barriers between getting there. Um, that I'm sure a lot of your different podcasts talk about. So although it's a good topic to to discuss, I I am pessimistic that it's ever going to change. You know, I'll tell you what, like when I try to compartmentalize these issues, as we saw here, clearly the aperture started expanding more and more as you see these influences, all these different influences that put pressure, downward pressure on like progress. That's something that I've experienced through you know, all of my episodes, if you want to create a holistic picture of the problems in the Air Force, I've tried to write it. <laughs> and I literally become paralyzed because right. I can't even begin to organize and explain these things because they're so interrelated, interdependent. And I can't talk about careerism without talking about volunteerism. And I can't talk about that without talking about all these other things. And then I just get paralyzed and I just give up. And I have never been able to create like the entire picture that I, that I know to be true. I think you're working on it through your podcasts, but I think it is, there's so much, um, there's so, there's so much there, right? There's so much material there that if you're talking, I mean, if you're talking about writing a book, it's, it's, it's massive. You're talking about these individual topics, right? Which all, would almost be the chapters of the book of the problems of the Air Force, right? And so maybe that's the only way is to dissect the individual pieces and then, you know, kind of look at it from a, you know, zoom, zoomed out kind of kind of spot. And then I, I guess the only solutions come from, you know, starting to work on the pieces one by one. Hopefully that's, I guess that would be the ultimate goal of, of what we want to see in, in the military going forward. Well, hopefully ChatGPT evolves a little bit more where it can accept audio. And then I can just pour in all my podcast episodes <laughs> and say, explain the problem. But uh, no, it's it's like very hard to, I mean, piecemeal works, but um, I'm, it also requires me to ask people to listen to, let's see, six, <laughs> at this point, 68 episodes. Like that's a heavy lift. 
Yeah. Obviously not for my regulars because they're like, bring on the episode. So thanks, guys. Right. Right. But even still, if you're, you know, I've, I haven't listened to every episode, but every single one of them makes me think and, and maybe makes me think about different situations. So um, regardless, it's beneficial. You know, what I'll say too is like we talked maybe a year ago. I think you were Something still like in. That, yeah. And we talked about, I think, some discipline things, just concepts generally. And I, I remember you saying that you were almost not wanting to listen to my podcast because it would be hard for you to digest all these things that you were an apparatus of at the time. And I know that, you know, as we talked about beforehand, and I've talked about in multiple episodes, part of this work that I do is because I'm not proud of a lot of my behavior in the military. And I'm trying to like a atone for that behavior, but also like, let's start solving shit. So even though it was bad in the past, we can try to make it good going forward. I wasn't able to accept or digest my role in, in the abuse in that organization until after the military, it gives you this sort of um, reflective ability to kind of really be honest with, with yourself. Have you experienced that? I mean, you're, you're six months out, but you seem different from the last time we talked. Yeah, it's a lot different. Um, you know, I haven't spent, I haven't spent much time really thinking about it. Right. I've been, I, I've been much more focused on the future than I have on the past. My, you know, I spent my last four years at Nellis and I look at it mostly positively, but it didn't end well. Um, and so, yeah, I think I've, I've focused a lot more on, on the future and, um, that's one of the things that I admire about you is not only identifying the things that you recognize were, you know, wrong behaviors or whatever, and then, you know, really analyzing them. But then on top of that, trying to trying to do something about it again, I just that's that's not normal. And that's not how I've really approached it. So I haven't spent much time thinking about it. Yeah, I know I'm not normal. Clearly. <laughs> I wanted to pop in real quick at the end of this episode. I don't do this very often, but I was going through the editing. And as I listened to the conversation between me and Ross, uh, I had thought of something that I wish I would have brought up in the podcast episode with Ross. So unfortunately, that time has kind of come and gone. But everything we kind of talked about, I want you to imagine going to see your doctor complaining about a problem. And when you get there, the doctor prompts you for what you think the solution is. And how ridiculous that sounds. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't come with some ideas when you go to see your doctor. But much like the doctor is the expert on how to fix it, you as the patient are a bit of the expert on what the problem is. Because you know what normal is. You know how things should be. And you also know that what you're experiencing is not normal and it's not acceptable. So when the doctor asks you what's going on, your job is just to tell them the problem not to help figure out a solution because the doctor is the one with the expertise, the authority, and the experience to provide the solution or to recommend solutions. And if when you went to see a doctor, they asked you what a solution would be and they acted frustrated that you didn't come with a solution and they did that repeatedly, really ask yourself, would you want to see that doctor again? Would you trust that that doctor wants to take care of you, that wants to solve your problem? Because I think in that scenario, the answer is clearly a no. And I think that is the best way to encapsulate what the whole concept of if you bring a problem, bring a solution in the work center is. I think it is not a healthy approach at all. Thank you.
Well, thank you for joining me, Ross. Um, and until next time, adios.